they're really building the wall in the wrong place. Uh, <laughs> it should just be around New Jersey. It's time for Loud Pipes. The podcast that brings you the best conversations relating to motorcycles, the riding experience, and other motoring adventures. Your host for this episode, Rich Warfield. Loud Pipes, episode 205. We took a little a little toe in the water last episode on cold weather riding. But this week, this episode, we brought in the king of cold weather riding. And that will be our main topic for tonight. So let's bring in my, uh, I guess say my new partner in crime, Chad, a.k.a. Boomer. Do I need to keep saying a.k.a. or we just say Boomer? We can just say Boomer, we can say Chad, I don't really <laughs> care. How are you, man? I'm good. Um, I'm doing good. Got some stuff up in the uh, up in the air. We'll talk about probably not on here. We can talk about it later. Off offline. But, uh, sure, sure. Yeah, we can talk about that offline. But uh, yeah, I'm doing good. How about you? You doing all right? I am now. We've we had another bout of flooding in the basement, which is always fun. We get heavy mm-hmm. rain. Our house kind of sits in a hill, and we get all the runoff from the neighbors. So. Occasionally, we end up with inch or two of water on the floor. Always fun. Are we drinking anything tonight? I am, but it's not going to be what you expect. Okay. What you got? I'm drinking an Italian sparkling drink from San Pellegrino. This is the orange and blood orange beverage. Nice. Also in a can, of course. That's a good one. That's my my so tasty like drink tonight. So I am uh, trying to get rid of. I didn't go to the store today, so I am finishing off the rest of the Shiner seasonal ale. <laughs> Is this the one with the peaches? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, not bad. Bad. Yeah. I mean, it'll do in a pinch, but um, so. Last time we were on, we were talking about cold weather, and I realized <laughs> talking to you that, you know, this was prior to our cold snap that we had. We spent about 86 hours below freezing. Yeah. Now our guest is going to look at me and go, 86 it's hours. laughing at Child. He really is laughing at us, and he's got a lot of experience in this area, which is a whole lot more than me. I went out and rode in 17 degree weather when the sand was all over the roads. I was like, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm going home. (laughs) I'm out. And I thought I had some really good gear, but you know, we've got our friend on let's, uh, let's bring Mr. Zion in here and he can instruct us a little bit better on cold weather riding. Uh, 17, no matter where you're at is cold. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's what i thought and, and i and i'll tell you it probably was a pretty fun experience because i'm going to guess you weren't dressed or had the right bike for it um so i'm going to guess it was a uh a, a harrowing experience so i had what i refer to as my cold weather gear on <laughs> and uh <laughs> which means put the jacket on yeah no, well, no, I, mean, I had I had layers, sort of. <laughs> well, well, honestly, layers 
it is really the key. Um, it, to, for me, that's, that's how I prepare for a ride. Um, now what I'm talking about, isn't just like what you did, you know, which is fine. You know, we're going to go out. We had a cold snap. I want to know what it feels like to ride in that kind of weather. What, what I, when I heard your guys podcast, I always think, well, I'm a commuter. I ride every day that I possibly can 365 days a year. How does a person prepare themselves to be a commuter cold weather rider? Um, and now for the record, I live in Eastern PA. When I drive down my alley, I'm looking across the Delaware river and I'm looking at New Jersey. So I can't get any farther East in Pennsylvania than I currently am. Um, so and my first commute, of all, your view sucks. I was going to oh, say it's horrible. I, I, it's they're really building the wall in the wrong place. Uh, it should just be around New Jersey. Um, so I think I'd be perfectly fine with me. Uh, but, you know, my commute's about 40 miles. Uh, I'm going to estimate about half of that's highway. Um, a good six miles of that is along the Delaware River, uh, which is usually significantly noticeably mm-hmm. colder than, you know, uh, when you get up out of the valley and, and start heading uh, north, I work pretty much in the foothills of the Pocono Mountains. So it's um, it's a pretty interesting commute, uh, but it's, again, it's about a 40-mile one-way commute, so about, you know, anywhere from 70 to 80 miles, depending on which way I go, uh, a round trip, and that's daily. So for me, cold-weather riding just part it, of it. Is, it's part of it. That's if I'm going to do this and I'm going to get the miles in that I like to do every year, I'm going to suit up and I'm going to go. Uh, the only time I don't go is, uh, when there's, you know, a bunch of snow on the roads or just a, too much ice to find a clean line to get to where I want to go. Um, that's another part of this is understanding your limits. Yeah. Well, um, that, that covers your, you know, kind of your route and your, your geography. What, what are you riding mainly for a motorcycle nowadays? And I know we're going to well, touch on various ones, but what's the current yeah. speed? My current bike, uh, since my accident, I had a pretty traumatic accident, uh, where I can't really handle a lot of really heavy bikes anymore. Uh, I'm riding a 2022, uh, CB 500 X, uh, Honda. Okay. So an event, you know, uh, uh, I guess I would consider a middleweight adventure bike. Um, uh, it's uh, outfit with a taller windscreen. It's got heated grips. Uh, it's got a set of uh, uh, GV uh, pannier boxes and a really beefy rear spring for my 240 pounds of fun. <laughs> and and uh, luggage. Come on, let's be fair. Some luggage. Yeah, my luggage. Yeah, which is important because having a bike that's outfitted properly can make a, a cold weather commute easier because some mornings it could be in the twenties, but then be in the fifties when I go home and I might not want to be as layered as I am in the morning. So it's really nice to have uh, luggage or some way to store any extra clothing that I might want to take with me. Yep. Uh, and know, we mentioned that. Mo- we mentioned that last episode. That's one of my complaints is at least for the gear that I have. And it's probably, 
not the correct gear, but when the temperature gets too far down, like I said, if by the time I get warm enough, I, I kind of lack what I feel is the right mobility for riding. So maybe start there with the right kind of gear and you already mentioned layers, but go, you know, go from there. Okay. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is the helmet. Uh, regardless of your beliefs or what your state requires, when you're talking about riding in cold weather, there's a lot of inherent risks with riding in that weather. Uh, you know, if it's 80 degrees and you don't want to wear a helmet, that's, that's whatever choice you want to make mm -hmm. in the winter. There is a distinct possibility that you're going to acquire wildlife that you're not used to. You're going to acquire slag in the road or, or salt or sand, whatever. Yeah. And you're going to inquire really cold roads where tires don't have the same level of grip. So the helmet's a must, but on top of that, a full face helmet is an absolute must. If you want to ride in cold weather, because that full face helmet is going to block a ridiculous amount of wind. Uh, that is going is what you're trying to do. The whole, the whole purpose of riding in the winter is going to be wind management. And how much of that wind can I keep off of my body? So starting at the top, I wear a baklava, which is, uh, you know, uh, a really thin ski mask that fits under my helmet. Uh, it, it covers everything but my eyes and my nose. Mm -hmm. And it tucks down into my jacket. So it creates a nice seal around my neck. Uh, what you want to do is keep all of your arteries uh, unexposed Covered to the up. elements. Yeah, yeah, because all of your blood that's going to your brain is pumping through your neck, through your carotid artery, and the warmer that you keep your artery, the less chance you have of having any type of a hypothermic situation. Um, on top of the helmet, I prefer a pin lock. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you, if you take the time to set up a pin lock, it will help nothing outside of a heated windscreen, right. um, <laughs> on, on your helmet, like a snowmobile type helmet, mm -hmm. nothing outside of that is going to be perfect, but it's a lot better than not having anything. Um, there's different styles. There's the double lens, uh, visors, there's the pin lock, there's heated, uh, I've always found the pin lock to be the most um, conducive and work the best. Gotcha. Uh, one, one of the things you're going to notice is that I shy away from anything that plugs in or has to be, uh, electric, uh, for the most case, because that stuff fails. Uh, I've tried the snowmobile electric visors and they work awesome until they don't. <laughs> and then you're you're 50 miles away from home and your helmet visor is freezing up on you trying to get home. So yeah, that's, that's why, that's why I don't use that type of a visor. Um, my, you go down to like the jacket, uh, that's kind of a personal preference. I'm like you, I don't like to be super bulked up. I wear a freeze out. Uh, I think they changed the name, uh, but it's the cycle gear Revzilla freeze out brand, uh, Axiom or something like that. They changed it to, um, I wear that as a base layer 
And then I wear an Andy's three Alpine star jacket with the, uh, it's got, it's a, a dry star. Mm-hmm. And then, which, which is really nice. Cause it does work fairly well. It's not, it's not Gore-Tex, but it works very well. And then it's got a, a, a zip out liner in it. And the, that pretty much has gotten me down, uh, into negative temperatures. Nice. Um, so that's pretty much all I wear on my torso and you just make sure that it's sealed really well. And then my pants. I I don't wear uh, riding pants per se. I do have them uh, for when it's raining. I have a, a climb pants that are Gore-Tex, but for some reason, my legs don't get very cold when I ride. So I just wear the uh, base layer, uh, the uh, freeze out base layer underneath my pants. The good thing about that is even though I'm up and moving around at work, I can leave them on all day and I'm pretty good. Uh, unless I'm really moving at work, I don't really get too hot. So they're kind of a good medium, uh, uh, heat, heat. The, the point is, is you're holding your heat in and you're keeping your arteries in your legs from getting too cold. Uh, and that's pretty much, uh, it, all oh, the gloves. I do use, um, Milwaukee leather heated gloves and the freeze out glove liners. The reason that I use battery heated gloves is that I've never found a pair of gloves of any sort that weren't heated where my hands didn't hurt when I was done riding. Huh? Uh, the Milwaukee's are nice because they they're just battery. So they don't plug into the bike. I don't have to worry about stressing out my bike. Right. You can buy multiple batteries, so I can go all day with a couple sets of batteries. Since and the, then, sorry, since it's Milwaukee, are they are they like rechargeable batteries, or are you talking about just throw away? No, they're rechargeable. They're lithium ion. Okay. At night, I come home, I throw them on my charger. In the morning, they're ready to go, and I have like three pairs of them of the battery, so I always have a couple in reserve. Um, one set of battery can get you two, three hours worth of riding. Mm-hmm. On high, on high. Plus, you got multiple heat settings. I've just never really found a glove that was thick enough that really blocked the wind and and, and worked. Where I didn't feel like my fingers were numb. And one of the things you brought up on your show was that that was a big issue for you. You couldn't feel your controls if you had big yeah. bulky gloves on. That's why ski uh, gloves. I I find like the big bulky ski gloves are. Or things that are used for like outdoor activity, they don't really work on the bike. They're they're too bulky. In, in general, I well, think. you bring up a you bring up a really good point. All of, and and I've tried it all. I've gone to Army Navy. I've gone to Cabela's, and and I and I've even gone to ski shops. Mm-hmm. None of that stuff really works on a motorcycle because it requires you to be physically active for it to for this type of gear to work. Yeah, to it's generate some re- heat. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're generating your own body heat and it's keeping that body heat in. Whereas on a motorcycle, for the most part, unless you're out ADV riding or, or dirt biking, you're pretty sedentary on the back of that bike. Uh, you're not creating a lot of your own body heat. Right. <laughs> and oddly enough, you wouldn't think it, but that freeze out gear has 
always been what worked. It's the thinnest and it has always worked very well for me. My coldest ride that I've ever recorded was negative 10 degrees. And I was going to ask mm-hmm. you what the lowest temp you ever got out in is. Yep. That was, I did uh, 40 miles at night at negative 10. And that was as, as cold as I can. I won't go that cold again. Uh, my body, I have too much titanium in me now. <laughs> what they don't, when they give you titanium rods, what they don't tell you is that you're going to feel the cold because mm. that rod will get colder than your bone gets. Ouch. Yeah. And that was a bit of a shock the first time I got off the bike and I stood up and I'm like, oh my God, that I can, my left leg is three times colder than my right leg. Huh. Um, so it's, it's something you get used to, but it's not something that goes away. Um, and I got a rod from my knee to my ankle now. So it's, it's noticeable. That's a whole nother show we could do someday. Accident yeah, yeah. and recovery and all that. Yeah. My recovery took two years and, uh, I'm still working on it, but yeah, that's Big definitely style. a show we could do. What, um, have you found a particular helmet style or brand that works better? I know you, so we talked about pin locks and the, you know, the visor and, and the importance of that, but have you found a style of helmet or a brand that, that works better in the cold? Uh, I, well, I use a, uh, an Arai XD4, which is an ADV style helmet. And I also have Corsair X10s. Um, yeah, the Corsair 10s. And I find that the XD4 works better because your face is farther away from the visor. Mm. Um, because of the and, ADV and, style, you think? Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the visor is, uh. I don't know, just, just placed a little bit farther away. The, the Corsair X or, or I guess what you would call the street helmet is more of a snub nose in your face type of visor. Um, now there are a lot of helmets with breath boxes that help divert your nose because it's really not your mouth because your mouth is under a baklava. Right. Uh, uh, it's your nose and you're, and you're generally breathing through your nose when you're riding. That's what causes that condensation. Um, and even with a pin lock, it's, if it's that cold or it's really kind of rainy, like if there's been times I've been out and it's like 35 degrees, but it's raining and that makes it real. Nothing, nothing really holds up to that. You know, you're, you're just lifting. I, I, at that point, I kind of keep the visor cracked a little bit and, uh, just to try to keep the airflow through the, through the helmet. Um, but uh, obviously buying a helmet where it doesn't allow you to close the vents is probably not a good idea, uh, cause you're going to want to close your vents to prevent a lot of excess airflow. So in the summer you're, you're buying a helmet that's going to give you the most flow. Um, and, and really during the summer, I don't close my visor on my XD4 unless it's raining. Uh, I keep it open because I'd rather just have as much airflow as I can get. Yeah. Uh, but it, but in the winter, obviously you want that helmet to <laughs> be as up. warm as possible. <laughs> yeah. If, yeah. If you don't have vents or that can close, you could obviously uh, tape up the inside and uh, do whatever you need to do to keep it dry and to keep it, uh, the airflow to a minimum. Would you keep like a rear vent open to exhaust like uh, humid air out the back? Or you're just I really don't. 
Yeah, I really don't. I just tighten it up, but you just got to kind of play with uh, what works for you. Uh, typically it's cold enough that it's going to force that, that warmer air out of your helmet. Um, and that'll really all depends on how you have your bike set up too. That's to me, the bike setup is almost more important than the gear that you're actually wearing. The the other uh, challenge. Yeah. I, w- I definitely want to talk about the bike. Cause that was some, some great points when we talked offline after the last show. And for me, the other problem is, you know, the pin lock is great and all the, all that stuff to keep the visor clear. But since I wear glasses, those will fog up as well, or sometimes on different, different circumstances than the visor. So I might get glasses fogging, but the visor's okay. Or the visor might fog, but the glasses are okay. And it just seems like that's an extra dimension too, that I have to deal with when it's cold or, you know, or wet. Yeah. If you don't wear contacts, uh, I don't wear glasses, but I do wear sunglasses and I've had that happen to me where the glass sunglasses start to get foggy and you're like, man, my visor is really foggy. And then you realize, no, it's actually my glasses. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, like, what's that stuff they call it? Cat piss. Uh, cat it's cat. A stuff. Yeah. There's stuff that you can spray on your glasses. Um, that allow that they're supposed to be like anti-fog. I don't honestly, I can't help you there. <laughs> like a rain X uh, product. Yeah. No, it, it's yeah. It's, <laughs> it's called cat gut. Uh, there's also another one that's from Australia. I've got them for my glasses after the, uh, the meetup through the hurricane rich. <laughs> yes. They, yeah. When we went through the Charahola. Uh, I don't know if you were a part of that or if you just hung back or didn't go, but I was there. Yeah. My glasses. Yeah. My glasses were toast. And that was the exact thing that he's talking about is that I had all kinds of issues just with my glasses. And of course, you know, John was making fun of me. It was like, you got contacts. Why didn't you wear them? (laughs) You're like, uh, uh, yeah, because because. Yeah, I, I can give you a weird tip and it's going to sound really bad, but it's a tip that I've used to get your pin lock set up. You can go into the shower. So you get a real good steamy shower going, mm-hmm. jump into the shower with your helmet on and you're going to find out if your pin lock's going to fail, fail on you. <laughs> um, and then also keep in mind that they're not removable. Uh, the, the seal is like a, a silicone seal. Right. And once it makes that seal and it kind of cures onto your visor. Yeah. If you ever take it it off to clean it, it's never going to seal right again. Yeah. I found that too. I, I had one that worked pretty well when I, I got my first RF 1200 and that worked pretty well until just like you said, I took it out, I cleaned it, put it back in, never worked right again. Yeah. Typically what I do is I clean the outside of my visor and then I'll clean the inside, like the outside, or like, I don't know what you call it, the outside or inside, but the other side of the pin lock, I'll wipe it, but I never separate the two. And when it does get to that point, I just, I purchase a new visor and a pin lock yeah. and I start, I start from scratch. Uh, I, I usually replace my visor about every two, about every two riding seasons. Um, I'll replace my visor. Um. And then I, I, instead of cleaning everything, I replace my liner and my, my cheek pads and all that. I just kind of rebuild with fresh stuff. Mm -hmm. I've never been able to find a cleaner that works. 
Yeah, they, I don't know. I've I've tried hand washing those things a few times, but I don't know it doesn't seem to I, doesn't seem to help much. I do have a cleaner that works for the bug slide cheek pads. Okay. Oh no 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 for the cheek pads or the liner the whole the whole thing everything you can remove basically. Oh, I just throw it in the washing machine. <laughs> okay. I pull the cheek pads, the liner, the whole nine yards. It all comes it out, throw it in the washing machine. I wash it, I let it air dry, and then we're good to go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's never never worked for me. I just must be stinkier than you. Well, you ride every day. We ride when we feel like it. You, Yeah, I was going to say. the. So, I ride a lot. But my commute to work, six, eight miles. Coming home, if I take the long way, it's 12. Yeah, and in the winter, you honestly shouldn't even be running your bike. Uh, If you're only going to run at six miles, you're not even heating up the oil enough to get the moisture out of it. Yeah. Uh, Harley put out a thing years ago on an air-cooled engine. Once it's to operating temperature, I think you have to drive it 20 miles before you expel all the moisture out of it. Uh, once it's to operating temperature. Now, if you're you're talking about a Harley or an air-cooled engine at 20 degrees, yeah, that engine may never actually get to operating temperature. Yeah, good point. Which is why when we get to the bike, I'll tell you why I prefer to ride with a liquid-cooled engine. Yeah, we can do that now. I think the the gear is pretty well covered, and now we can kind of you know, transition that into the bike and, and not just the bike and how it works, but then, you know, how the gear and bike works together. Cause I'm sure there's some combos that work better and worse depending on your bike oh, setup. Absolutely. Uh, the, the two most important things for me is that it's a liquid cooled engine, uh, because of the fact that, uh, air cooled engine is designed to operate in certain operating temperatures. You know, your manual will tell you, you know, uh, this bike is designed to be driven between these two temperatures. Uh, a liquid cooled is going to shut off the flow of water to the engine until it reaches its operating temperature. And my bike, by the time I'm two miles up the road, my temperature gauge is at operating temperature. Nice. Uh, and and that's very important because every engine has a uh, well every modern engine has an evap system that's going to take all that liquid sludge that's evaporating out of your engine and it's putting it somewhere Uh, i'll give you an example when i was riding that that night that i rode that negative 10 degree ride i was on a harley deluxe with 18 inch ape hangers on it (laughs) i remember that bike and yeah, it was a beautiful bike. It had the hard candy green. It was a completely wrong bike to be riding in that kind of weather. No, no wind protection. Yeah. And it was what the uh, Harley's most chromed out motorcycle that they sold. Really bad on brined and salted roads. That bike was so cold that the front end became rigid mm. because the oil had frozen up in the front end. Oh man. Uh, before that, I was going home, and it was middle of winter, and I'm pulling up to a red light, and the bike would not stop revving. It just stayed at the cruising speed I was at because 
the throttle plate inside the throttle body, all that sludge had collected around that throttle plate and froze. And so when I let off the gas, the throttle plate stuck open and I basically just had to kill the bike and coast to a stop. And then I had to sit there and just play with the throttle until I broke that throttle plate loose. The the answer to that is to circumvent that pollution and, uh, you know, uh, instead of letting it go back into the motor and burn, you buy a little filter and all that sludge goes into a filter and then you just swap out the filters. A little catch can the, type deal. Yeah. Now on a Honda, all that sludge just kind of goes into the air box. It doesn't really work the same as it does on a Harley. Uh, but the whole point of riding a bike with it that's that's liquid cooled is that you're getting it to that operating temperature to at least burn that yep. liquid out of the oil. Yeah, evaporate any uh moisture that's yeah. been in there or whatever. Yep. Yep, because that motor's cold and there's moisture inside the motor, there's moisture in the oil, there's moisture in the gas, and those are all things that can freeze, you know, when you're talking about really cold temperature riding. The second biggest thing that I find is you want a bike with fairings. You don't want a naked bike. Uh, <laughs> you don't want a really streamlined street bike. An ADV bike is the, is the main bike of choice for anybody who really wants to do that type of riding. Uh, you could also look at a sport touring bike. That's going to have the wider fairings, uh, the bigger windscreen. And the reason why is you're trying to create a bubble of no air around the rider. Um, and a naked bike obviously is allowing every bit of that air to hit you right in the chest and the face. And you know, you're talking about, so it's, it's, it's 20 degrees outside and you're doing 75 mile an hour down the highway. I don't know what that wind chill is. It's horribly cold yeah. and you're going to get hypothermia real fast. Yeah. Uh, 50, 50 mile or, or uh, 50 degrees on a motorcycle could be hypothermic. So a lot of us ride in 50 degrees, you know, but you got jackets on and you, you might start to shiver a little bit. The minute that you start to shiver, you're becoming hypothermic. So that's like your baseline right there. Like if I'm out there and I'm starting to shake a little bit, yeah, I should be tough. done riding. Yeah. Yep. It's it's time to go back to the house because I'm in a dangerous situation. And there's records of people who have been out riding in fairly decent temperatures. The one guy I read an article, he got off his motorcycle, he went and sat in the field and he died because he got confused. And he thought I got to get off the bike to get warm, mm. but he was, that was not what was going on. And he was hypothermic and he basically just sat in a field, went to sleep and never woke up. Oh, um, man. so there are, there are dangers outside of just wrecking your bike. Cause it's cold, you know, bad things. And you can start making really poor decisions. If you're more focused on being cold, uh, then, you know, well, okay, this deer is going to run out in front of me. Well, you can start making really stupid decisions before you even get to that point if you're not yeah. focused on what you're doing. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, like we talked so about with the, the 50-50, right? 50 mile an hour, 50 degrees. But if you're riding in 50-degree weather and you're going you know, 75 or 80, it's going to be quite a bit cooler on the body than 50 degrees, especially if you have oh, absolutely. Lim- limited wind protection. 
So yeah, there's charts out there. That, the, yeah, I just got that chart pulled up at 50 degrees. Yeah. At 50 mile an hour, the temperature that you feel on your body is 40 degrees. All right. And yeah, so it goes, drops significantly after that. So, so what, you're 60? below freezing. You're below freezing at 45 degrees and 50 mile an hour. Oh, okay. So, yeah, we were feeling that when we were in the mountains last and we were riding in the 40s and it felt. Oh, yeah. Very cold. Oh, yeah. That was, that was, that was bad. <laughs> and one thing to keep in mind in the winter, humidity translates to cold. So, like in the summer when it's humid, you're like, oh, it's so sticky and, and wet and it's making me sweat in the winter. It's like, damn, it's cold out. Well, yeah, it's, it might, it might only be 40 degrees, but if it's an 80% humidity at 40 degrees, that translates to feeling even colder. That's why we're so cold in Daytona. When we go down there in January for the Rolex, if it starts, you know, dipping down to like 50 or lower, it feels so much colder than it does here in Charlotte or even does in back in Pennsylvania because you know, in the Northeast and new England in the winter, it's relatively dry, but in Florida, you know, maybe 55 degrees and, and that humidity, you just, you're frozen to the bone. Yeah. I always found that to be an issue when I'm out in your area and we're doing like the chair hollow or whatnot. You get up there in those mountains and it's very, you're up in the clouds. It's very humid. Mm-hmm. And you feel that it's like that moisture just gets in your bones and it makes you cold. So the, the point of having a bike with a good protective fairing is that you're pushing that air around you. So you're creating a cocoon of negative airspace. So it might be 20 degrees. You might be doing 80 mile an hour, but that air's not hitting you. And that really is the key. Uh, the best bike that I ever owned was my Africa twin. And that thing just blew air around me and <laughs> it kind of sucked in the summer, Yeah, you know, because I was running the same setup and, you know, in the summer it's like, well, man, I'm, I'm kind of warm. It's not really, I don't get cooled off as much, but in the winter you're like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. The 500 gets me about 80% of what I got out of my Africa. Um, for obvious reasons, that's being the bike that I, I, you know, wrecked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just can't get myself back on one. Um, so I've accepted the 80% that I get from my, my 500. Um, but another thing to always consider is hand protection. You can't protect your hands enough. I use, you know, uh, big plastic hand guards to try to buffet that wind up over my gloves um, with the heated grips, the heated gloves, my hands are never hot, but they never hurt. And that is one of the keys uh, to, I think, riding in the winter and being happy is if your hands hurt, you're not concentrating on riding. You're just wanting to be done with the ride. Um, get over the fact of saying my hands are going to be toasty warm. Like I'm like, I'm sitting in front of a fire. Yeah. That's never going to, that's not uh, going to happen. I've never tried those hippo hands. <laughs> I, I, I just can't get over the looks of them. A lot of people <laughs> love them. And I would suggest that a person tries them. I it's just, I'm okay with my setup. So I really just don't like them. 
um, not so big about having my hands inside of something. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, you go down, do you, do you get caught on those things? Like, I don't know. Just not for me. Uh, but for somebody who's wanting to get into this, it's a really good idea to at least give them a shot. Um, but absolutely, even on a, um, on a sport touring bike, I see a lot of sport touring bikes these days with hand guards on them. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you if you've tried much in the handguard department, if that helps at all. Um, I'm using the, uh, the, the Acer bis. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and I've used, uh, the, uh, the storm bark busters and both of them work perfectly fine. Um, I, I like to have a good solid metal hand guard in case I ever go down. My hands are protected a little bit. Uh, you know, I don't like just the cheapy, yeah, uh, plastic, plastic mounts and stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's that to me is really important is having my hands protected and then having a windscreen that helps push that air over you and reduces that buffeting. Uh, you, you, you just have to have that uh, to kind of complete that pocket around you. If you have a lot of air hitting you in your chest or hitting you in your face at, at you know, sub freezing temperatures, that's just going to be 10 times worse. So even you can even get your winter setup kind of, kind of done when it's warm out because you're looking for that. How much is that air is hitting my legs? How much of that air is hitting my chest? And what are you willing to accept? You know, the more air that's hitting you, the more layers you, you have to have. So back to that chart that Chad found when you were riding in minus 10, if you were going 60, that's minus 48. Yeah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's cold. And, that's and that insane. was too much. When, when I got home, I, I my hands were hot. And I went upstairs and I, I, I woke my wife up because it was the middle of the night. And I put my hands on her arm and I said, are my hands hot? She's and like, she nope. goes, no, they're, they're ice cold. At that point in time, I was in trouble. Uh, and I had outridden my gear in that cold. I mean, nobody should be riding in that kind of temperature. Yeah. And I immediately went and jumped in the shower and just stood in that shower, getting my body warm again. Um, yep. Because this was kind of, I mean, obviously I was riding in a Harley. This was before I had really gotten serious about uh, how to protect myself and make sure that my riding experience was an enjoyable one. At that point in time, I was just, you know, hardcore Charlie. Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to do this regardless. And, and I was just throwing caution to the wind and hoping I didn't kill myself. Yeah. I'm just going to tough it out. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you one of the reasons why I want to go with like a, an ADV bike uh, with, with no Chrome. I refuse to own a motorcycle with Chrome on it. You really don't want to take your really nice Harley or your really nice Indian or, or anything like that, a really high end expensive bike and ride it on roads that are covered in brine mm. that are covered in salt, because that's going to eat that Chrome up. It's you want a bike that's got a lot of plastic on it. You want a bike that's got a lot of paint on it because you're not going to wash your bike in February, you know, unless you got a heated garage to wash your bike in, you can't really wash them. Yeah. So you got to accept the fact that this bike, is not going to look pretty for four or five months out of the year. 
It's it's going to be, it's you, you don't, you just really don't want a high end bike. You know, the 500 is a $8,000 bike. It's, there's not a piece of Chrome on it. And right now it's covered in brine. Um, <laughs> I'm staring at it as we speak. I'm sitting in my garage looking at it and it's just covered from head to toe in brine. And it'll stay that way until the next time I ride on wet roads and it gets washed off. Uh, I'll wash it in April, maybe. <laughs> That's funny. Um, That's probably a good way of know, looking and, at uh, it, especially if you're riding it well, every day. When you have a, I mean, and there's nothing wrong with owning a really beautiful motorcycle. Uh, you know, I, I have a, I have a zero, uh, DRS in my garage that will not leave my garage until the temperatures are in the seventies. You know, it, it doesn't get ridden on bad roads. It doesn't get ridden in the cold cause it can't because it's got a battery in it. Uh, you know, and they don't like cold weather. People are finding that out the hard the, way. This year, yeah, I was going to say, as the news has has told you, um, so yeah, I'm I'm kind of looking over my list here that we had put together. Um, also, I like a bike with rider aids, uh, traction control, and ABS are, are they're not must to me. ABS on cold weather is kind of a must. Yeah, and most bikes anymore come with an ABS setup. Um, traction control is nice because it's very easy. Easy to, to spin. kind of yeah. lose that traction. Um, currently, I don't have traction control on this bike, but I do have the ABS. And ABS can engage a lot quicker when you're on really cold roads because your tires just don't warm up on cold roads. And so to me, there's been a couple times, plus wildlife, you know, you're talking October. Yep. They come out in October, November. Yeah. The deer are really moving. Um, I've, uh, well, I, I nicked one this year. Uh, I've hit, I've you've, had one hit deer, deer before, hit me. You? Yeah. I hit one on my Harley. Uh, I had one hit me and then I, I nicked one this, this fall and I had one almost kill me. So mm-hmm. I've had some really close calls with the wildlife. Uh, the deer, the buck that hit me, picked me up and moved me three feet to the right and broke my ankle on my way to work. And it was by the grace of whatever that I didn't hit the ground because he just hit me square right in the middle of the bike. And, uh, just, wow. I learned how powerful those animals are. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I figured I would have killed him and I went back after work and, uh, he wasn't there. So they're, they're powerful animals. Yep. I don't know. What what do you get down in Texas there, Chad? Do you get, I don't know if deer right come out in, in the hunting season or hogs or I don't know what's in the road. Armadillos. Uh, no, we get everything, man. Uh, there, I've got a rule that when the, after October, uh, I don't ride after sunset getting towards the evening after October. Uh, I don't know. Let's say October 20th. Yeah. I don't ride. Uh, first thing in the morning, I'm good going to work, but hitting back roads or anything like that, you know, getting out there and cutting loose. I don't do that. You know, an hour before nightfall, I'm, Mm-mm. I'm already heading to the house because there's no way I've had too many, 
you know, I can tell you stories about friends of mine that have been hit, you know, Zion's been hit by a deer. You know, if you can catch, you know, Phil at Cleveland moto, he talks about how he got teabagged by one as it jumped over top of him. And, you know, a buddy of mine hit one head on, on his, uh, Vulcan and yeah, it just completely screwed him up. No. And they'll get up and walk away. They'll get up like two or three minutes later and walk away. And you're just like, you gigantic furry dick. (laughs) I was, I was partially kidding, but is that a thing? Like, do you see armadillos in the road? Do they, do they cross the road? Yeah. And possum and skunk and And you name it. Everything else with four legs. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be more worried about the hogs. I I read an article about a, a guy who saw a couple babies on the side of the road and then one of the parents got the front of his bike and then the other one got the middle of his bike. He killed them both, but they put him like in trauma care for a long time. Oof. Cause I, some of those hogs are what? Four or 500 pounds. Oh yeah. Yeah. We've got one out there at our ranch that I'm gunning for as soon as I'm up to it that I'm going to go out there and hunt rich. You really got to come down here and help me with this thing, man. But he's easy, easy three fifty four hundred. 400. Mm. Yeah. I, that's scary. Cause they, they're mean. And I'd rather, I think I'd rather hit a deer, uh, because at least you're hitting something that's more upright. It's, it's kind of like well, hitting a wall I, over something. It's going to launch. Cause it's just going to hit your tires, going to hit it. And then you're just going to flip over that. Well, not only that, but with a deer, if you hit a deer, the deer's going to get up and it's going to run away. If you hit a hog, there's a good chance you're going to piss that hog off and it's coming, turning around and going after you. Yeah. I always thought it'd be really scary to hit a kangaroo because I figured Mm. you're going to piss it off. It's going to kick your ass when, when it's done. (laughs) Um, there was a, I don't remember where it was. It wasn't an actual kangaroo. It was um, one of the smaller ones, like one of those, the wallabies. But a dude hit one of those, and it looked like, you know, somebody tried to redo the scene from Carrie. Because he looked like he was, it just, he hit it, and the thing exploded on him. Oof. Yeah. Yuck. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty gnarly. Wildlife is... It's just one of those fun parts about riding motorcycle, which you can't get away from. I, I see, see, I live right off the river and there's a canal. So the deer come out of the woods to drink in the canal. Then they go back into the woods. I got to go up through the woods to get to the highway. I'll see anywhere. And, and this is not hyperbole 10 to 20 deer in the morning. Uh, easy. Just getting to the highway where I live because they built so many communities in these farms that yeah. nobody can hunt. So these deer just leave, live because they know nobody's coming after them. And, yep. and, and most of them, unless it's rut or, or they're babies, the babies are just insane. Yeah. Uh, they, they just sit there on the side of the road and watch it. I mean, you just kind of, you learn to just keep your hands over your controls at all times in the morning. Cause I leave for work at four 30 in the morning. So ha- half of my commuting is done at night. Oh yeah. And it's definitely dark. 
Yeah, and my biggest fear is that I'm cranking, you know, north of 75 down the highway, 80 mile an hour, cruising in the morning. And my biggest fear is just having one of them on a highway and not being able to see it. Mm. And at that point, you're you're gone. You know, you don't have to worry about it anymore. But that's just not not how I want to go out. But there's always that possibility. Have you put any auxiliary, auxiliary lighting on the bike? Or are you just running yeah. stock? stock lights. No, I, I have a set of Denali's on the front. I don't know which the round ones. Uh, uh, I don't know what model they are, but they're the Denali's. Um, to me, that's really important because you, you got to be able to see black ice. Uh, and, and typically you need to see that reflection. You can see the reflection. Uh, the headlight on the Honda wasn't the greatest. So I put the Denali's on and I usually put, put a, a set of lights on. Um, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things like when you're talking about riding on roads that have been wet or could be wet, that you really want to be paying attention to, to the dark spots or the shiny spots. Um, you want to be paying attention to things like tar snakes. That's one of the things people don't ever think about is those will get frosty real fast. Uh, if you're in an area where they do a lot of tar snakes, um, I, or what, what is that? The, the sealer that they put on cracks. Yeah. Um, uh, you want to watch painted, any type of painted line, any type of painted surface that's going to get a frost layer on it faster. Uh, one thing that I learned the hard way is new pavement. So I guess for about the first year after they lay down new pavement, it's, uh, for lack of a better term, outgassing oil, Hmm. uh, because when, when they mix macadam, it's mixed with oil. And it takes like a year for that oil to kind of expel itself out of that asphalt. So what happens is, is that water sits on that oil and it takes longer for new pavement to dry off than it does old pavement because the water basically sits there. It doesn't soak into the pavement and into yeah. the ground. Yeah. It can't so run through. It just sits on top of the oil layer. Yeah, so if you're riding down a road and you're like, all right, the road looks pretty dry, but you know you got a five-mile stretch of new pavement. Yeah. When you get to that new pavement, you want to be real careful because uh, it could still be still be wet. And the bad part is it's usually a lot blacker than, than mm-hmm. older pavement, so you can't always see uh, if it's wet because it just looks black. You know, It looks like it's wet regardless of whether or not it is. Um, and I have a stretch of highway right now that I'm dealing with that where they repaved about a eight mile stretch of road. And in the mornings I can kind of tell, Whoa, this is, this is just a little bit different than the rest of the road. A little squirrely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of little things like that to keep in mind. Manhole covers are another one. If you typically have a cover that you fly over and it doesn't, you don't really go around it. I start going around it. Uh, water can pool. That's a, it's a metal cover. So it's going to freeze faster than the road. Um, they're not joking about bridges freezing. Oh yeah. A lot of, a lot of times melt. If, if they plowed through that bridge, that the, the, the slush on the side of the road will melt while it's going to go into the road. So you just got to be careful. If you know, you're going over bridges that there could be a lot of ice pulled up in those locations. Um, so yeah, road surf road surfaces are something uh, that you should definitely keep an eye on. So what about, so I, I'm just kind of going through the notes here. So we covered gear, 
most of the motorcycle and a little bit about the road surface, but we should probably add in a little more riding style. So, you know, obviously things to avoid, like certain types of pavement, the tar snakes and all that. But what about the rider itself? Like what else can you do to, to help yourself out when it's cold like that? Well, the best thing to do for me, um, and I'm not an expert rider by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I've been doing this. I've been doing this uh, stupid hobby since I was about 12 years old. I'm 46 now. So I've been doing it a long time. Um, I think, that, I, know, I think that qualifies as expert. Yeah. That's enough years I, 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 in the know, saddle. Uh, it's a long time, but I've also hurt myself a lot. So uh, I don't know if when you hurt yourself, if that knocks you down a few pegs. Uh, but for me, no. <laughs> the colder it gets, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to stop going as fast, okay. um, especially on curved roads, because you don't that corner that you drive every day, that guy that came through there dropping slag could have just left a pile of that on, on that, on that corner. Mm-hmm. And you have no idea that it's there. Uh, it could have rained and, and a lot in the winter time, we get a lot of crazy rains and it, will wash a lot of that garbage back onto the road that got pushed off. Yeah. And so you really just never know what the road conditions are. Plus that pavement, if it's 20 degrees outside, that pavement's freezing, your tires are stiff. You really don't want to be having to lean that bike over, you know, to its uh, chicken strips, you know, any more than you have to. So the slower you go, the less you're leaning that bike over. And, and you're keeping that heat more in the center of that tire. And that's even yep. more so if you've got a bike with big, wide tires on it. Yeah. The outside, <laughs> yeah, the outsides don't heat up. No. The other road thing that I always noticed, and I, maybe people forget about in the wintertime, is especially in that early winter, you've had all the leaves from the fall. The ditches are plugged. So you get a good heavy rain, you know, in December, early January. Chances are the water isn't flowing like it should because the ditches are plugged, the drains are covered. So you get even more crap pulled out in the road, especially, you know, when you get one of those heavy rains. So there's all kinds of stuff that can be in the road. It's also a good time. Uh, I've noticed a slight increase in, in the people that I ride with that ride in the cold. There's a slight increase in tire punctures for the exact same reason you just said. A lot of that debris gets pushed off into those ditches and it gets washed back out into the road. Yeah. And next thing you know, you got a nail or a screw in your tire. Yeah. Um, I, I don't ride with tube tires. I try to avoid tubed tires because I carry a plug kit with me and I carry an air compressor with me everywhere I go. So if I'm going to get a hole in my tire, I can just sit there on the side of the road and plug it. Yeah. Um, At least get it, get it home. Yeah. Yeah. That's a personal choice. Uh, I just try to avoid bikes with tube tires anymore, or I try to convert them to tubeless. Um, you know, just cause I hate, I hate having her. I've ridden bikes with flat tires before and it's not a whole lot of fun. Um, and I've done it more times than I care to remember. Uh, but, but you're right. It, it's anytime that the road conditions are going to be kind of suspect. You really don't know what you're getting into. You don't know. If that, that culvert on the side of the road pushed a bunch of water there and it froze a lot of times you come around a corner 
and you're going to see a big plot, a big shiny spot on the road. The best way to get through that is to get off the gas. Don't touch the brake, stand the bike up and get through, get through it, roll through it. Yeah. The faster you're going, especially if that happens to you in a corner, there's only so much you can do with speed. So if you're, if you're, you're do everything you can to straighten that corner up, you know, you're going to come in and it's almost a little opposite of like how most people would normally do it where you're really trying to like see that apex. You're really trying to just straighten that corner straight out without going to the other side of the road. Uh, because you just really never know you will, the, the longer you ride in the cold, you will experience situations where there's an ice, there's ice there. And there's really no way through that ice. Don't be a superhero. If you got to slow down and slow duck down. walk, duck walk across that ice. It's a lot easier to duck walk across some ice than it is to slide and have to get out from underneath your bike and pick it up. So an interesting note you had here, and I don't know how much of this you've done and certainly something we wouldn't recommend for the first timer, but riding in, in snow or deeper snow. I've done it and it really, I I no longer commute in that kind of, I know you've done it yourself, but you did it when you were living in Boston, right? Yeah. A couple of times. It's, it's not much fun. (laughs) It, it really isn't much fun. It's more fun if you're out there on a on a Saturday and you're in a field and you're playing in the snow. Yeah, it's not as much fun as when you're trying to get to work and you're like, I got pictures of that KLR, you know, <laughs> laying on its side where my wife had to come get me and help me pick the bike up because every time I tried to pick it up, it would just slide. I'm glad you, know, you mentioned that because I, I want to use that picture as the, the album art for the show. Yeah, that was a fun, that was a day and and it cost me about a three days worth of arguments with my wife. Oh man. And and that really was, I had picked the wrong tire. I went with a more knobby tire thinking that was going to be better on ice. And if you look at car tires that are snow tires, that's not what they are. You know, that's lots of little sipes in them. Yeah. 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 So I had basically just messed up and I've always wanted to be able to ride all year round regardless if there's two foot of snow in the road, I want to ride. I bought a Ural with a sidecar. It's the most dangerous thing I ever rode in my life. And I never even made it to winter with that bike. And it was gone. Like, nope, get it away from me. It's things going to kill me. Um, I thought about riding my wife's Riker. She has a three wheeled, uh, a Can-Am Riker. She had one. And, um, that bike never made it to winter. She ended up upgrading to a more expensive spider and it's like, Ugh, I'm not taking that bike and wrecking it. You know, it's, it's no, I'm just not going to do that. Uh, it costs way too much money for that. So when it does get to a point when there's a bunch of snow on the road that gets you, you know, to the point of know your limits Yeah. and I cannot break my left leg again. They've told me if I ever break my left leg, I'm going to lose my left leg because they can't fix it. It's, they had to do a lot of work. I almost lost my left leg in the accident. And they told me, you probably don't want to break that again. Uh, I can't break my right ankle again because there's nothing left there. So I've learned at 46 what my limits are. 
you know, I, I can't do any hardcore off-roading anymore. And when it's, when I know the roads are just unpassable, I got to leave the, like I, I rode the car or rode the car. I drove my car to work this morning. We got hit. We got hit this morning with a big snowstorm. You know, we got about four inches of snow. I just drove the car, you know, and I hated it. It made me miserable, but it would make me a lot more miserable if I ended up in a hospital. Oh, for sure. You know, but for cold, because of the bike, bikes don't really love cold weather that much. If it's down, probably about five degrees is probably my limit where I would be like, nah, the bike, the bikes just don't like it. And, uh, when you, you, know, got, you start, yeah, even some of the simpler things, like you have such a smaller battery, you know, for things like cranking it up, then you do a car. So if it gets cold and your batteries reduce capacity because it's that cold, you know, the oil is thicker and everything. It, it's a chore just to get it fired up. Yeah. And that's another thing, like on the bike, do not use a lithium battery. If right. you got a high horse, <laughs> if you got a high horsepower bike in the summer, a lithium battery is phenomenal. The cold, the cranking power of a lithium battery is through the roof. They suck in the winter. Yeah. If you, if you're going to leave that bike sitting outside all day while you're at work, that battery's draining. Yeah. Um, you don't want to be running dinosaur oil in your, in your bike. Uh, like, especially like a 2050, a Harley at 50 degrees doesn't want to start with 2050 conventional oil. I always switched over my big, my big bore engines to a full synthetic. My Honda is running a, a full synthetic. Uh, the synthetics are thinner. They don't, they don't have to heat up to, to become thinner. So the bike doesn't have to crank through all that oil to get the motor started. Another reason why I went with a 500 is the pistons or pencil size. You know, look at the piston on a Harley Davidson. They're massive. (laughs) Close to three inches in diameter. Yeah. Uh, The piston on that 500 is like an inch and a half. So that's less mass that you're cranking to get firing. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Those, those lithium batteries, boy, do they crank. I, I put one in the in the VFR uh, a year or two ago. I forget when it was, but man, you hit the starter and it's like instant start. It just cranks it over so fast. Oh, absolutely! They're great. You know, like if you have like a drag bike or like a Hayabusa or something, something with a lot of high uh, a high compression ratio, yeah. that lithium battery is going to fire right up. But give me an AGM glass battery all day long if I'm going to be running that thing in the winter. Yes, sir. Uh, the Harley Davidson, I used to use the, the big bore batteries, which was about, I think it were like 320 cranking amps. Uh, it was about the most powerful battery you could put in a Harley and it would fire my Harley up no matter what the temperature was just, but I was also running full synthetic, uh, to avoid that issue with, with the thick oil. Um, you know, so those are all things to think about. Uh, you also want to, if you're running a, a, a liquid cool bike, Make sure you got radiator fluid in there, and not straight water. Uh, yeah, um, you know if <laughs> that'd be bad. You did, yeah, if you're like you, like you wouldn't have, you would have water in your race bike. You know, yeah, you, you sure as hell wouldn't want to take that out on a 25 degree day. No, you know, you're gonna have a problem real fast. It's gonna heat up for you, that's for sure. Actually, the you know, so the VFR might still have water in it. Now that I think about it. 
another thing that I would think of is you don't. So I have mission raids on this bike right now. Dunlop mission raids. It's the best cold tire I've ever had. I have not broken loose that tire once Mm. and I've ridden it. It's a really cold rain. The problem is is I'm only going to get about 5,000 miles out of that rear tire and it's going to be shot. Now, you don't want a 10,000 mile, 12,000 mile, super hard compound tire in the middle of winter. You right. want a softer tire that's going to heat up faster and your long, your, your mileage isn't going to be as good. You're not going to get 20,000 miles out of it, but you're going to stick to the road when it's cold. And so now in the spring, I'll switch back over to my uh, Dunlop missions, the other ones, uh, that are a harder compound. I get 10,000 out of the rear. Uh, I got a set sitting here ready to go. Uh, so in the spring I'll switch back over to those. And then, uh, these raids next fall, right before winter hits, I'll put another set of those raids on. So that's yeah, pretty wild. Get a tire that'll heat up. I'm checking that out now. It's pretty cool. Yeah. The raid is a really, really cool looking tire and it rides really good. Uh, I've never had a tire stick to the road the way those things do. It's, it's amazing. Um, but they just, they're so soft. I'm just chewing right through them. Yeah. That's what I'm reading here. It's some kind of, some kind of silica that's highly dispersible, increases the filler ratio and promotes compound flexibility at low temperatures. That's just what you want, right? The other day it was literally 35, 36 degrees and rain. And I mean, it was just sleeting. And I cruised to work, no problem. And I never felt like that tire wasn't underneath me. So they got me sold on that one, but it's an expensive tire for what, for the mileage. Like if I was riding that in the summer, I'd get a month and a half out of it. And I'd be like, this tire shot. I got to get rid of it. Uh, The, the, the regular Dunlop missions. I I've always on my Africa. I've always gotten 10,000 out of the rear. And. Really, you can't beat 10,000 miles out of a rear tire, out of a motorcycle tire. Yeah, especially not with uh, the Africa Twin was 1,100, wasn't it? Uh, no, my, mine, was, mine was 1,000. It was or the old 2017, yeah. yeah. It's 1,100 isn't it? Yeah, I bought the 1,100 uh, Adventure Sport while it was still in a wheelchair. And then once I got to where I could ride, it was too heavy for me. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, I would be standing at a red light and my leg would flex. Uh, another thing they don't tell you is that your bone is going to press up against that rod. And, uh, when you're standing there and you're holding up that bike and your, your bone is pressing up against that rod in your leg and it's pretty a painful experience. Yeah. It sounds painful. Yeah. They had to, uh, ream out the bone marrow. Uh, to, cause my fracture, I had a compound fracture in my, uh, tibia and it was like a salami cut. You know what I mean? Like it yep. was cut at, at an angle and to prevent it from just breaking itself over and over again, they had to ream out all the bone marrow between my knee and my ankle. And f- so they could fit the biggest nail or they call it a nail. <laughs> they could fit the biggest nail in that they could possibly fit in. That's funny. And the doctor, they call them nails. We call them rods. <laughs> yeah. To me, it's a rod. I mean, it's a very large one. 
um, my, yeah, my tibia was compound. My, my fibula was broken in multiple pieces and they said, yeah, we don't fix those. So my, my fibula will always be broken. Um, and then I got these screws that go in, uh, two right below my knee and two right above my ankle holding everything together. Ouch, man. And, uh, yeah. Don't, don't yeah, break that again, please. No, no. They, they pretty much warned me not to, not to keep breaking it. Oh, cause they told me when they put me to sleep, they said, uh, you might wake up without a leg. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's, that's nice to know. It's like, Oh, really? Yeah. So I was pretty happy when I woke up with one. Although I'll be honest during that two years, there were times where I was like, man, maybe it would have been easier, uh, if, if it had been gone. Well, uh, yeah, I don't they know. Could be short-sighted. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always the, the other side of the road is always the better side, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I don't, I'm, I, and now I'm glad that I still have all of my ligaments. Uh, but it, it, at the time when you're trying to, you got to remember, I, I shattered my right heel and broke and broke my right knee. I compound fractured my left leg and then I broke my left shoulder. So three of my appendages were useless. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's hard to do anything, you know, and, it, and I live in a raised ranch. So yeah. it was like, you just can't get, get away in and stairs. out of my house. Yeah. yeah. It was a very long process just to get in and out of my house. Um, and it, it, it was a good two years of recovery and I'm still, still fighting with it, uh, trying to lose the weight that I gained and everything else. So, mm. uh, I know you went through it. When's, you know, the, you, uh, when's the last time we saw you? Was VIR? Is that when we last met up? Uh, you, yeah. That's yeah, the last me. time I saw you. I've I've seen John since then. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you guys came up. Was, that wasn't too far after the accident. No, because you were still, you know, quite gingerly getting around, even though you rode down there. Yeah. <laughs> rode to the well, <laughs> I was riding before I was allowed to walk. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. I came down here. I, I still wasn't even back to work yet, and I was getting out of the wheelchair and onto the bike, and then uh, I started walking again before I was given the go ahead, and then uh, I I, I, did, I took a couple rides. Told my doctor I had been walking, and he was he wasn't happy. Yeah, he's and like then, he's like you're not trying to walk, are you? You're like nope, but I'm riding. Uh, my relationship with my doctor went with one of them. I had multiple doctors. Uh, that one went south real fast. Uh, he pretty much said, well, then you're fine. Go back to work. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I had yeah. Uh, one of my physical therapists was telling me that they're like, yeah, if you, if you go riding again, they're like, don't, don't come back here. Yeah. Yeah. You got to learn to keep things to yourself. I was like, no, I, I won't. I'll probably fall out of a chair or something. Yeah, I didn't do my physical therapy nearly as long as I was supposed to, but it was very expensive for me. So, yeah, we can we can have a whole podcast about how insurance and how insurance agencies are out to screw you. So, well, yeah, they're in business to make money, not take care of you. So, my wife actually works in insurance, and she will be the first one to tell you that insurance is a scam. Was it, actually, I can't. I, so I have Progressive. Progressive paid me more than the guy who hit me, who was found at fault. Uh, in Pennsylvania, fifteen thousand dollars is state minimum. Oof. And I found out. 
so I, as a motorcyclist, I have full tort insurance in Pennsylvania. Every motorcyclist automatically has that. So I could sue the guy. And the lawyer told me, well, you have a case, you can sue the guy. However, a judge could find that you were both at fault and then you're screwed. What I found out was if I tell that guy, I don't want the $15,000 that your insurance will provide me. I waive that. I sue him. And if I lose, even though they tell you, you don't pay unless we win, you still got to pay their costs to prosecute the case, which was about $15,000. So yeah, I, it, even if I could end up owing $15,000 to a lawyer, get nothing or take the $15,000 from the guy to hit me and lied to the police until he got caught. And, and that guy got off scot-free. So I got, you know, I got nothing out of him. I got more out of progressive and I got more out of Aflac. I'm telling you, if you, if, if you don't have Aflac, get Aflac. Okay. So because I, you know, it just added up. I, I, it was a lot of work to get the money because I had to provide every document. Uh, my hospital stay was just under a million dollars. Wow! For everything, it was like nine hundred, nine hundred and eighty thousand dollars, something like that. Nine hundred eighty-five thousand dollars. What it came out to, you know, and. That I don't even consider myself that bad. I spent uh, three weeks in the hospital and, and rehab, and you know, obviously had a, sur- a couple surgeries. It was, it was a million bucks, and wow. I, I had you know, a high deductible garbage health insurance, and uh, but I did have Aflac, and all, every little thing that they did added up with that Aflac. So you know, that fits and I in paid, after insurance, right? Or it covers well, things that insurance a, doesn't. It's a supplement. They wrote me a check and they said, all right, here's all your paperwork. This is what we came up with. We owe you, uh, God, $13,000, $14,000 out of Aflac, something like that. I don't remember exactly. Mm. Uh, and then I just got a check in the mail. You know, here you go. See you later. And it, I think I pay like four ninety nine a month or four ninety nine a paycheck. So. $10 a month for it. Oh, it's not bad at all. No, no. And it covered, you know, everything. And, you know, so between progressive who my progressive guy was wonderful. They, he went out, looked at the bike and he told me, he goes, uh, well, you've seen pictures of the bike. And oh, he yeah. said, he, he, he told me, he goes, I can't believe I'm talking to you. He goes, when I see a bike that looks like that bike looked, he goes, I'm talking to the widow. Oof. And he goes, I can't believe you walked away from that. And it, I, I, I can be completely honest. The only time I got emotional was when my wife brought me those pictures of that bike. Cause I never saw it that night. Uh, oh, it was, yeah. it was dark out. I never, all I did was I smelled the gas. I never saw the bike after I got launched off of it. Yeah. And so she had to go get some stuff, uh, off the bike. So she took pictures of it at the junkyard. And the only time I got like real emotional was when I saw those pictures. Cause I knew us as motorcyclists know mm-hmm. when you see something like that, you're like, Oh, Oh, oh my God. I, I lived like, yeah. Cause you just don't realize how bad it really gets. Yeah. Mine is, and, was similar. I, you know, I can look at pictures of the bike and oh, I don't have the bike anymore, but I can look at pictures of that I can look at the race suit that's still hanging in the garage, but 
when I look at the helmet, that's the one where you're like, you know, you get a little, <laughs> little weak in the knees. You're like, oof. Yeah. Thank God you had it on. Yeah. Uh, that's the one that gets I, me. I'm not sure I'm here. Uh, as you know, I don't know if you remember when I hit the ground, my head hit a sewer grate because when I landed, I immediately took my own helmet off, which I shouldn't have done. But the shock was like, I was going to take my helmet off and then I was going to try to stand up and I, there was no standing up. Mm. And, uh, when I put my head back down on the ground, it hit a sewer grate. So that's where my head landed. Ouch. And so I, I'm a full believer that that awry kept my, kept my head. Uh, I didn't even have head trauma. Uh, I didn't have a concussion or anything. Um, I was fully awake through the, I, I remember going through the air. I, do you remember that? No, I was concussed. Like, so I don't remember. Okay. So you, you, you ended up racking your head pretty good. I remember the guy's mirror coming into view thing. And I thought, and I remember saying why, like, cause like, why did he do this? And then I, I went off the road. I went down into the ditch and I remember thinking, Ooh, I low saw, I low sided. That's good. Well, that's where I probably fractured my legs. Oof. Yeah. And Sli- then sliding and hitting stuff through there. Well, yeah. Cause he pushed. So I was on the white line and he hit me and then he pushed me off into a ditch. My crash bar caught. That's what launched me. I went over 30 feet in the air. I landed over 30 feet away from my bike. My, my heels came down on on the pavement and that's what crushed my heels. Cause my heels came down so hard that they shattered my heel and my head hit the sewer grate and somewhere along the line, I broke my shoulder. But I re- I remember being in the air mm. thinking, uh, this sucks. Like I, I, I distinctly remember sliding thinking this is good. Oh crap. I went in the air and then there's that weightless feeling. Yeah. And at that point you're just landing. And I never even braced. Like I didn't have my gloves. I didn't have any scuff marks on my gloves. So I never actually reached out to brace myself. And I just remember flying through the air. And then I remember hitting the ground and thinking that hurt. Oof. And then a woman stopped and she told me not to get up. She said, your bones sticking out of your leg. Oh, damn. <laughs> and then she told, I remember her, some guy was like, oh, you know, help him get up, help him sit him up. And a woman was like, don't touch him. And she apparently was the one that called my wife. She's got, you know, she talked to my wife. Uh, she kind of mommy bared me while the ambulance got there. Then I took a nap for a while. <laughs> of and, course. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then I was pretty irate when I woke up and the cop was telling me that the guy said he didn't do anything. And, but it, there's a ton of witnesses that gave the exact same story I gave. Uh, Cause he did a, he, he had his left hand turn signal on. And he had already started to make the left-hand turn, so I hit the white line to go around him. He decided to do a U-turn in the middle of the road is what happened. So he swung it out to the white line and basically just pushed me right off the road. He swung wide it, to make a U-turn. Yeah, and then he, yeah. He, told, he told the cop that he wasn't doing nothing um, and then finally admitted that he decided to just pull a U-E in the middle of a busy intersection. So, man, and it was my fault. You know, I, I, I have, you know, 
Uh, I have to say that I have, I have fault in that. I shouldn't have, I knew he didn't know where the hell he was at. So I should have been more patient and not trying to get around him. Yeah. Your instincts uh, were kicking in. You knew it didn't look right. Yeah. Nope. Nope. I knew something wasn't right. And I, but you know, that was my dad had just had, uh, five bypasses the night before. Um, they did, they had to do five bypasses and he was on life support and it was the night before Thanksgiving and like nothing was, it was just, yeah. I should, I shouldn't have been on a motorcycle in the first place. My head. Yep. Not a good head space for riding. Nope. It was a bad head space. Uh, you know, but I know that's not the topic tonight. I'm sorry. Getting off, getting off topic. No, you're good. And no, we, no, 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 no. It's, it's okay. very good. We like, yeah, we're good with hearing about this because what I've tried to say is, you know, you can hear about your wreck and the mistake you made. Yeah. You probably shouldn't have done this, but maybe somebody hears it and goes, you know, next time I go out, I might want to watch out for some asshole that might do the exact same thing. It's, it's always trust your gut. If, if anything in your head tells you this is a bad situation, don't think that you can speed your way out of it. The best thing to do is to back off. Uh, and I, and I've really tried to practice that before I used to be like, let me put your ass in my rear view mirror and I'll never see you again. And that, that put me in a hospital. So now my approach is if, if I can completely avoid you and let you go on your merry way and it might cost me a couple more minutes, I think I'd rather do that because it costs me two years of my life. You know, and it's not worth it. And I, I, my gut told me the guy was an idiot. He didn't know where he was at and, and he was confused. And he just did something stupid. You know, yep. And luckily I had witnesses because if it would, it just been with his word against mine and it could have been a whole lot messier than what it was. Um, you know, it, it's, but I also say to myself, if I didn't take, if I thought to myself, truly that guy was at fault and there was nothing I could do. How many times do you watch a YouTube video where the guy says that? Like yeah. you, he, there's a video, he got in an accident and he says, it's that asshole's fault. I didn't do anything. It's his fault. Yeah. You shouldn't ride again. If I truly believe that I'd never would have gotten back on the back of a motorcycle because if I, if I believed that I couldn't protect myself and that was the outcome, every time somebody did something stupid, it's not worth riding. If you can't learn where you made the mistake, stop riding. That's right. Yeah. yeah and, to, and to Chad's point, if it, you know, if it helps even one person, then it's, it's worth telling the story or, you know, and telling it again to anyone that'll listen for about a year. Every time I'd go to a restaurant and I had a cane for quite a while, um, you know, I, I'd be limping and, and I'd look at all the little kids and I'd say, never ride a motorcycle. Oh, no. Like, and these kids would just look at you and the parents would look at you. And I'm like, don't ever ride a motorcycle oh, man. because I was in that mindset of, you know, and, and, you know, I was teaching my kids, my kids got their first street motorcycles. They were 12. Yeah. I bought them a CB five or I bought them a, a Honda cub, taught them how to ride in a parking lot, bought them a CB 500 F kept them in a parking lot. Both of my kids had motorcycles ready to go when they turned 16 to go get their permit. I had my accident. I sold both motorcycles. And, and to this day, I tell my kids, if you want to learn how to ride, 
that's on you. I can't be responsible. So when hmm. people ask me, you know, oh, should I get a motorcycle? No, you shouldn't. Are you going to? That's up to you. Yeah. You know, uh, should they be outlawed? No, I love motorcycling. It makes me who I am. But I, dude, it's a dangerous freaking world out there. And you, my wife had never even thought about riding a motorcycle before she met me. She rode on the back of my bike for several years, and then she got her own spider. The first thing I told her is, when you leave that garage, you better accept the fact that you may never come home. And if you can't accept that fact, you probably shouldn't be riding. Yeah. And if you think to yourself, it's only a matter of when and not if, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, you probably shouldn't ride. So I understand it. Someday I might not come home. And one night I didn't. And it took me three weeks before I got to come home. I still ride. And, but I, I just can't be responsible for feeling like I forced my kids into it. Yeah. And, they they got to make up their own mind. And I do the same thing with, with my boys here. Like, you know, Bryce has taken to it all in, but. I'm not pushing him to do it. And Cameron's not interested. You know, I'm not pushing him. It's like, fine. We, we don't have to ride. We'll do something else. Yep. See, it, might not, Colin, it might never be for him. See, know? Colin, Colin turned around and, you know, he used to ride on the back of the bike with me. We used to go for rides. There's all kinds of, we've taken pictures. We've gone on trips. We've done the whole nine yards. And he turned 13. I think it was 13, the summer of his 13. He kind of went, uh, yeah, I'm kind of done with that whole nut to butt thing. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I went, understand. I went, <laughs> okay, sure. fair enough. He goes, uh, yeah, I think I'll be, I'll be ready to get my own bike, uh, <laughs> when I turn 16. And I went, okay, you're going to go to class. I'll go with you. We're going to do this. We're going to pick it slow. You're not getting a sport bike. We're going to look at what you're going to get, you know, we're going to, we're going to be smart. And he turned 16 and I watched the drivers that were around here and I started breaking out in a cold sweat and mm. he's like, you know, I don't think I want to get on a bike anymore. If I do, it'll be after high school. I want to get through high school. I want to get through maybe after I get my pilot's license, I'll look at getting my motorcycle. And I went, Oh, thank God. <laughs> Yeah, and it's funny because it's something we love, but you, you it, it isn't He's, us. It isn't us. It's it's people who just don't care if they kill you anymore. Oh, yeah, but see, I don't know about you guys, but I've always been told, you know, you get out on the bike, every person that's out there on the road is out there to kill you. If you keep that in mind, then everybody is going to try to kill you you got a really good chance of having a good time on the motorcycle. I you know, agree a hundred percent. You forget that dumb stuff starts happening. Never assume the car is going to make the right decision. Correct. Yeah. You know, if you uh, all, if you always assume the worst case scenario, then you're always uh, happy always that you got a better it. case. Yeah. It's you're right. A hundred percent. So, you know, you start thinking about this and you start explaining it to them and they're like, no, I don't want to do this. No, thank you. 
no, I don't want that mentality. I don't, I don't want to do that. And you kind of go, man, that sucks because you were the kid that, you know, Hey dad, can we go for a ride? Hey dad, let me grab my helmet. We're mm-hmm. going. Hey dad, let's, let's go, let's go, let's go. And oh. yeah, but they, they tend to come back to it. You know, Probably it's a, will, but yeah. And they, it, and they have to want it too. Like that's, that's not something that you want to force, you know, either you're into it, you understand it, accept the risks and prepare accordingly. Or you probably shouldn't do it. Well, I think that if they want it, then they'll get a better education. They'll pay more attention. If it's just sitting there for them and it's a, hey, I want to do this once in a while, Mm -hmm. it becomes a much more dangerous situation because they don't have, they don't build those skills up. I mean, exactly. For me, I ride in the winter because I become uh, a grumpy a hole. When I don't ride, like it literally gives me a level of depression that is bad for my marriage. Like I'm just, I'm miserable. So I have to ride or else it's bad. My kids are like that. So, you know, they want to go out once in a while. Sure. Well, now you're going to go out there and get killed because you're not paying attention to what you're doing. And sadly, I watch my kids drive cars. Both of my kids have their uh, their car licensed, and they both scare the hell out of me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah. no, I don't want you on two wheels. You scare me on four wheels. Yeah, uh, y- y- yeah. So maybe you get a couple years under your belt driving without an accident, and then we start talking about two wheels. Uh, you know, and I equate motorcycling like tattoos. Uh, I don't know about you, Rich, uh, Boomer. You got tattoos? Yep. Okay, a lot. There's, well, not a lot. I've got several. I, I've got 15 or 20 of them myself. And you get two types of people. You get the guy that's going to tell you it didn't hurt at all. Oh, tattoos don't hurt because he wants to be a badass. And then you get the guy that's going to tell you the tattoos hurt like hell because he wants to look like he he went through a war. Right. You know, oh, I got all the, I got this tattoo and it hurt really, really bad. But in reality, it's somewhere in between. They're not going to kill you, but they're not exactly fun motorcycling and people who ride motorcycles the exact same way. They're going to tell you just how freaking dangerous they are and that nobody should ever do it because they want to look like a badass. Or you get the guy that wants to completely dismiss it and act like nothing ever happens. And it's the easiest thing in the world to do. Again, there's a point in the middle there. That's the reality of it, of people should understand that this is not, uh, you know, taking a walk in the park. This is, a uh, 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 risky type of a uh, of a hobby, but should you should you choose not? It, it, to me, I'd rather do that and jump out of an airplane. <laughs> you know, it it you you, it, you will never get me to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. It it makes no sense. Uh, it's a jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. It's overrated. <laughs> yeah, I see no point in that. If it's up in the air, you stay in it. You know, if it's going to come out of the, yeah, unplugged. <laughs> unplugged. I'm sorry. Speaking of coming out of the air, I unplugged myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. If, if a plane's coming out of the air, then you jump out of it. If it's staying in the air, you stay in the plane. That's right. <laughs> uh, but there are people who love that, and I and like I always tell my kids, if they wanted to learn how to jump out of planes, I would support them. 
by making sure they had the proper education and the best gear that they could have. And that's yep. what you should do with motorcyclists. You cultivate that and you try to make it as safe as possible. Yep. Agree. Yeah. It's, I think it's one of those things where, you know, I don't want to say driving a car is easy, but it's easier get in, to get into a car and, and get going. But on a bike, it's one of those things where you, the more, you know, the more you, tr- you know, train and practice, you have a better chance of success by arm, arming yourself accordingly. Well, and they are trying to make it easier. You know, you got automatic bikes now. Uh, the zero doesn't have a transmission in it. You know, it's a, uh, it's essentially an automatic bike. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're making them a lot easier and now they got bikes that self balance. And well, know, I'm thinking more about just like awareness, you know, lane positioning, you know, where to be, where not to be, you know, and just general, general awareness of what's going on around you that that's heightened to a higher degree than when you're sitting in a car, at least for me, oh, it is. I, I find when I'm on the bike, I, well, at least I, <laughs> I consider myself a much better rider when I'm on the bike, but when I'm in the car, I, I let my guard down a little bit and I'm not as, not as sharp as I could or should be. Yeah. I drive a car so rarely that I feel uh, hyper aware mm-hmm. when I'm driving, uh, especially since the accident. Like uh, my wife drives most places because I have a hard time uh, with my back and everything just sitting in the driver's seat for very long. But like when I do have to drive to work or drive somewhere, I'm almost hyper aware because I'm everything feels too close to me. Right. Um, you know, cause I'm, I'm just so used to being, you know, uh, 25,000 miles a year on a motorcycle. I'm used to being on that motorcycle. Yep. It, and, and now I drive a big Subaru Outback. It's a big giant car. And it just, I just always feel like I'm going to hit everything. Is but I realize I'm in the minority there. <laughs> Is the Outback that big? I guess they've grown oh, over well, the years. Well, it's an older, yeah, it's an older one. So it's a pretty good sized car. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, I'd be more than happy to, to, to get rid of it. <laughs> if you could tolerate it. Oh, I, 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 I hate cars. So yeah. Any, anything about cars. I'm, I'm not like in the classic cars. I'm not in the big trucks. Uh, no, I am a two wheeled motorcycle guy through and through. Very good. Well, awesome. This has been good stuff. And yeah, Chad and I just stuck a toe in the water on a cold weather riding. And I don't know, maybe if we were honest, it was just a placeholder to talk about cold weather carry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's outside of my expertise. (laughs) Uh, I don't know how you'd carry a gun when you're got gloves and everything else on. uh, uh, Although I, I, I actually have been more interested in carrying uh, I was in Trenton and had a situation where I really wish uh, or really regretted not having a way to protect myself. Um, and uh, that kind of got me thinking like, uh, you know, it, it just might be time to take care of those problems. Um, my, we, we were talking about it. My wife has got a real estate license yeah, and she, she wants to get her concealed carry we have a really good place up the street here. That's good. That does classes. Um, 
they teach you a lot about the legalities of uh, concealed carry, uh, how that relates to Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, I, I just feel like if she's going to be doing stuff like that, she should have. Uh, I, I will ask a gun related question. If you want to do that, you turn. <laughs> sure. Go ahead. I don't know how to pronounce it. The by NR by E Y N R A. So it looks like a handgun, but it shoots a like oh, a pellet. Burna. Burna. Is that how you pronounce it? I believe so. Yeah. Uh, is that like a viable alternative to a firearm? No. I mean, it's it, it's a non-lethal pepper ball, basically. I I've looked at them. It's I get the idea, but you're not you're not stopping a threat with that. You may slow them down or hold them off, but you know, imagine trying to fire a pepper ball at someone who's, you know, all knocked out on something and they're out of their mind. That's that's probably not gonna do it. I don't know. Yeah. It's non lethal, that's the point mainly. But then how effective is it? That's it's funny you brought bring that up. I, I've been looking at those the last probably week and a half. They came across my radar and I I started looking into them. So I don't yeah, know. It, it came up for my wife and I'm like, well, in a situation she would be in, you you probably want to stop that person. You know, if they're coming at her in a private residence where, you know, she doesn't have much chance, you know, against a, uh, you know, an adult male or whatnot, she's probably going to be in some trouble. You're right. If he's on something, you know, I've seen people that are on stuff still come at you after they've been shot. My my number one challenge with the, and I believe it's Berna, my number one challenge is if you pull that, it looks so much like a handgun. If the other person is armed, you're you're done. So, yeah. so it may be a good countermeasure if the other person is unarmed, but if they are, you know, you're just basically asking them to shoot you at that point. Yeah, and there's not much you can do at that point. Yeah, that's a, I didn't even really think about it that way, so... Uh. It's been a lot of years since since it's been a, a hobby of mine, and you know it's it seems like it's uh, the current environment uh, seems like it's like like you were doing. You're kind of getting back into it, and that's kind of where I've been at. Yeah, but it's just the, it's just the idea of taking responsibility for your own protection. That's that's the crux of it for me. Is you know the well, police may be great at what they're doing, but if someone kicks in your front door when they show up seven minutes later, you know, they're just handing out seven, tickets. You know? So yeah. first of all, seven minutes later is really a pipe dream. It's more like 15. Yeah. Even and if it was three minutes, that's going to be, you know, two and a half three minutes, minutes too, too late. late. Yeah. If you have any questions, how nasty something can get, I know, I know Z, you can't do this. Um, just for your, you know, the sake of your legs and all that. But if you have any questions as to how nasty something can get, go watch an MMA fight or take a force on force class and watch how fast 30 seconds and you are effed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, no, no. Yeah. I spent a lot of time watching MMA and you're right. It, it, somebody could out like physically, I'm not a match for an in shape adult, you know, no. uh, somebody that's going to come try to break into my house is probably going to be able to, uh, 
take care of me relatively easily for home defense. We're taken care of. I, I have that. Yeah. Um, it's personal, you know, carry handgun. Uh, I mean, when I was younger, my idea of the perfect carry weapon was a, a, a super black Hawk. Yeah. You know, I mean, cause you didn't have to shoot a super black Hawk. You just had to point it. And, and, like, and when they can see the damn bullet in the end of the barrel, no, you ain't got to shoot that. Oh, um, they're like, Oh my God. Which was yeah. good because I was going to, it was going to be everything I could do to hold on to the thing. when I did shoot it, uh, you know, <laughs> they're going to stand my, around and watch and see if you actually fire it. Cause like, we want to see this. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I had a super black Hawk in my hand and a 25 ACP in my boot. So, you know, one was, <laughs> one was going to break my wrist. The other one was going to blow up in my hand. Yeah, you know? pretty much. Yeah. So it that was, was like that a was, Jennings or a Brico. Which one was it? I, you know what? Oh, oh my God. It was, <laughs> it was 20 some years ago and it probably cost me 20 bucks to buy the gun brand new. Yeah. Uh, the ammo was more expensive than the actual gun. It, and, and about every third round would actually go off. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was probably a Jennings, maybe a Brico, you know, <laughs> oh, a little Raven 25, horrible little gun. Yep. Uh, Absolutely garbage. Yeah. I, I don't thought. even know if you, if you could call it a gun. It was, it was practically a toy. I think if you shot somebody, they'd probably be like, ow. And then they'd just keep beating the crap out of you. Like it, it was not a, it was not a weapon that it should be concealed carried. Yeah. And then, you know, a Ruger 22s were always on me somewhere. Uh, I always liked my Mark II. Uh, so, I had for a Mark- your, so for your wife doing real estate, I can tell you what my wife carries. And she carries a uh, SIG 238 and 380. Yeah, they kept saying that a 380 would, would probably be a good one. But they wanted to do... Um, they, she was going to take a class, a starter class. And they would put like four or five different uh, guns in her hand and let her shoot them um, to try to, before she bought one for herself to try to figure out what felt the best. Um, Cause I was thinking like a, you know, like, like a, like a three eighty, or, or maybe a nine mil. Um, I, I just wasn't sure what was going to feel good to her. Yeah. And the best bet is, I will again offer this advice to every guy out there. One, don't buy your wife a gun or your girlfriend a gun. Two, take her to the range. Get your car, credit card out, your debit card, whatever. Hold on to it. Flag down the guy there and go, just get her what she wants. And then sit back and let her shoot guns and pick out what she wants. Yeah. They basically said all, all it, you're paying for is the ammo and they'll fit her to the best gun that they think, you know, that she feels the most comfortable with. And yep. to, to me, that's cause you know, I, I I'm going to go in there and I'm going to buy a Ruger nine mil or, or something that says Ruger on the side of it, because I'm a Ruger fanboy, always have been, um, whether or not that's the best gun probably isn't, but, uh, that's it, always what I've owned. You know what? They Ruger's got a Ruger security nine right now that's actually a really good little entry level nine millimeter handgun yeah so that may be what she would go for they kept thinking 380 because the i guess the ammunition isn't too bad um i like the cost wise isn't too bad and well it's more expensive than nine mil 
Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, 380 yeah. is almost double the price of nine. Well, especially okay, the defensive maybe. rounds. Yeah, it's, you know, the practice training stuff is about about a third more than nine. Yeah. But the defensive stuff is, yeah, it's 50% to double. Yeah. Uh, trust me, I've been trying to get, uh, to get Jennifer into a, uh, into a nine millimeter for years to carry a nine just so I can save money on the 380. Okay. Yeah. So we, we've just gotten to that point where we're, we're talking about it and we both want to take the, the safety class and it's been years. I mean, when we went into the place, I told the guy, I said, I haven't really fired a handgun in 18 years and she's never fired one. I'm like, so you, you got to treat this like we don't know what the hell we're doing, which we don't, not at this point. You know, I mean, I grew up with them. And then when I moved to Pennsylvania, uh, I sold everything I owned to afford to move here. You know, I was a young guy and uh, I, I sold it all. I would like to applaud you with your mentality going into the gun shop and saying that because there's so many people who go in there who do like you, they get out of firearms. They, you know, they may have carried one 20, 25 years ago. They walk into the gun shop. Oh, I know all about guns. My granddaddy taught me how to shoot. I know what I'm doing as he muzzle sweeps everybody in the store. So I just want to say thank you. And I applaud you for that of going, Hey, I don't know anything. I dated a girl whose, whose dad owned a gun shop out shortly right after high school. And, uh, we, we used to hang out there all the time and you'd see those guys, you know, in there and you'd be like, Holy crap. I don't want to be in this room with this idiot. And, you know, so it's like, I'm that idiot now. And I need to recognize that. And, you know, I, if you want to talk about working on bikes or riding bikes, I, I feel like I can hold my own. You want to talk about guns anymore? I used to get the magazines and, uh, you know, I used to just, it used to be a big part of my life and then it wasn't. And, you know, I'm starting at ground zero. I'm, I'm saying I'm a Ruger guy cause that's what I used to love. You know? Uh, yeah. So you kind of need to try, you know, some of the more modern things and just, you know, see what works for you. Yeah. I mean, Ruger I still makes nice stuff. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say they don't, but there's a lot of other stuff out there, especially in the, the semi-auto carry world. There's a ton of options. Yeah, even when I was into it, Rugers weren't really known for concealed carry because they were just usually a lot bigger. You know, they just were a lot bigger and harder to conceal. Uh, yeah, the Ruger P89 I or the P85 were the original nine millimeters that Ruger came out with, and they're big, heavy oat, uh, boat anchors. Yeah, so probably not the best concealer. If I'm looking for something that I can ride with, and and for me, uh, w- w- we were sitting at a red light in Trenton, New Jersey, and I've told Stacy before, she's always in front. I, I ride behind her because if not, I lose her. Uh, cause she rides more conservative than me. Plus I like to just keep an eye. And I've told her several times, I said, if I tell you to go, you look left, right. And then go like, I don't care if you're running a red light, if I'm telling you to go, go. And the one day that happened, this dude was at a gas station. He sees us sit at that red light. He does a hail Hitler. Uh, and he starts doing a march towards us. 
And I'm looking at that red light. Like I got about five seconds before I got to tell her to go. And right then that light turned green. And we, I was like, get out of here. And that guy was coming at us. And I don't know what his agenda was, but at that point in time, I really wished <laughs> that if I had to stand my ground, I'd have something to stand it with. Right. You know, and sometimes we ride in some of these cities, you know, and anymore it's crazy in these cities. So it's, I just feel like, but I don't even know where to begin. Like, yeah, some tra- I got, training is a, a good place to start and you've got the like right approach, you know, listen, listen to the, you know, listen to the people that do it for a living and let them refit you and get you reacquainted. So boomer, here's a business idea for you. Develop a course for how to carry and protect yourself on a motorcycle. Because how does a right-handed person pull a gun who's sitting on a bike to protect themselves? You don't. You gun it. You go through the intersection. You just get out of there. I, I've I've sat down with people. I actually talked to um, several people who ride. Uh, we've looked at it from different angles. We've kind of done exactly what you just said. You're sitting at a light. We've mocked this thing up. We've we've walked through it. We actually even went. Uh, I went with a couple of friends of mine down to an intersection. We went in the evening when there wasn't anybody around and we kind of set this up and it was like, well, you can stand there and you can come off the bike. You can put the bike on the kickstand. You walk away from the bike. You can step away from the bike. You can do all of this stuff or you can just hammer the throttle and get the fuck or get the stuff. Just go. And it, it, every time it came down to, yeah, I can pull the gun, but, what do I do about the bike? Yeah. Well, I either give him the bike or I just leave. Somebody pulls a pistol on you at a stop sign. You leave. Yeah. You either give them the bike or you leave. And that's kind of where it comes down to. I mean, I'm yeah, just, a lot of things are like that. It's you, you have to weigh so many different factors and you know, the usual caveats. We're not experts. This is, just information, not legal advice, <laughs> just yeah. information. But you know, when you, when you're talking about the use of deadly force, there has to be, you know, there has to be the, the trigger, if you will, or the, the action to prompt that, you know, if they're just trying to, you know, jack your bike, well, you just give them the bike. It's insured. Yeah. It's like, you know, I'm not going to start a shootout because someone wants my VFR. Take it. Get the damn well, thing. I'll walk the, home. They, they would have the upper hand anyways, cause they've already got, yeah, they got surprise on you. Yeah. Yeah. So they've already got you at gunpoint at that point, they're going to nail you before you can get to yours. Right. Unless you're in a situation where I'm at, where I'm kind of like, I'm seeing it coming. Like this is about to go bad. It, ha- it hasn't they, yet, but it's about to become a situation. Yeah, then you leave. It's a different story. Yeah. If you're pumping gas and you know, someone's running at you across the parking lot, you know, and they pull a piece on you and they're yelling like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot you. I hate motorcyclists. Well, that's a different story. You know, now you've, you've, you've signaled your intent and you look like you have the means to pull it off. You know, as Chad would say, I might have to go hot here. So (laughs) that's a different story. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a lot of scenarios that run through your head. Like, you know, you, you try not to put yourself in a bad spot, but when you're sitting in traffic, you don't always have that option. (laughs) 
Yeah. No, but again, you, you kind of, yeah, it's, we've, we've looked at it, we've mocked it up and it always comes down to you either give them a bike or you, you just leave. I mean, you guys were, like you said, I saw him coming. He was coming right towards me. He's on foot. I'm on a bike. Goodbye. Yeah. Oh but, yeah. Uh, and that's in that scenario. I felt confident. Just get, get the hell out. You know, uh, no cop is going to give you a ticket for, for running a red light. If you're in that scenario. And even if he does, I'd rather pay the ticket. Yeah. Then, then get jumped by some dude. that's a crackhead, you know? Well, uh, see, so I don't know if we've talked about this, rich, but when Jennifer and I, we go out and say, we're going not just to Walmart, we're actually going to dinner or something like that. So when I leave the house, I have what's I like to refer to as my throwdown. And my throwdown is this cheap ass looking money clip. And it's got a $20 bill. And beneath that $20 bill is just a bunch of cut paper. Right. But it looks like there's a lot of money there. And before we leave the house, I put that in my left front pocket. My keys go on my right. And I put my gun on and my knife and you know, grab a flashlight, maybe my med kits on my ankle and you know, the whole nine yards I've got, I've, I'm geared up. We're going out. We're leaving the house for whatever reason. And yes, I I'm really bad about this and I should be doing more when I go to Walmart than just grabbing my gun and, you know, going to Walmart and get my stuff and come home. But I've got this, what I like to call is my throwdown. And it's for this exact reason. I'm not paying attention for whatever reason. And somebody steps up and goes, give me your wallet. Holy crap. I allowed you to get into my zone. Now I can do one of two things. I know how fast I can clear a holster and put rounds onto a target. And it's about 1.2 seconds. And that's including me moving off to the side of where his gun is. Right. That's a second. That's fast. Or instead of smoking this dirt bag, I can go, well, I don't have to, I won't have to go get a lawyer. I won't have to worry about shutting off my Facebook. I won't have to worry about disappearing off social media. I can still talk to my friends. I can still do this podcast. I can still do all of this stuff. And I don't have to worry about destroying my life by just reaching into my left front pocket and pulling this $20 bill out and throwing it behind him and telling him to F off. There you go. Go away. You got my money. Yep. Goodbye. It cost me 20 bucks. I don't have to cancel my Facebook account. I don't have to worry about people digging into my past. I don't have to worry about anything because it cost me 20 bucks not to have to shoot this dude. And that's why I do that. And it's one of those things of, well, yeah, you threaten me, but a push comes to shove, dude, you're not going to breathe yeah. when I'm done. But that's, yeah. See, that's every situation is different. Just, you know, like Zion was saying, and if they if the threat is that they want your wallet, well, yeah, fine. You give them the wallet. But if the threat is for whatever reason, 
I'm about to take your life. Well, that's a whole different threat. And well, you just got to run it through the matrix, the flow chart. Yeah. When, when it starts running through the flow chart and the first thing is it's give me your money. Well, now I want your car keys. You gave me your money. Now I want your car keys. Uh, now we're escalating. Right. Yep. Uh, you changed the rules. So you didn't just want the $20 and to go away. Now you wanted to change the rules. Now we have to change things. Now you get to see how fast 1.2 seconds is. So yeah, good luck with that, Zion. So keep us posted. Yeah, well, let us we know. can do an update. I'd like to know. Yeah, and if you have questions about anything you want, shoot me a message. Um, I'm not on the Slack channel much anymore, uh, but I gave you my number, so shoot me a text. You got questions? I've got. You know, I can point you in the direction if I don't know the answer. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Slack's been pretty quiet. Yeah, the main thing is I I don't have it anymore. I I ran into phone troubles this year and I just never put it back. That's my yeah. main thing. Yeah, well, maybe if your show kind of gets where it was before, maybe it'll, we'll it'll get, some, uh, get some more people in there. We can do that. Yeah, I don't really know. Is it doing good? Like your downloads and everything? Uh, I haven't looked in a while, but when we first kind of relaunched, it was... I think, what did we say? It was about a thousand per show is where, and that's, you know, that's about, uh, 20%. Yeah. About 20% of where we ended. Yeah. I never unsubscribed. So as soon as you dropped a show, it it showed up on my phone and I'm like, Oh, cool. (laughs) Yeah. And there's some, there's some weird things with the updates. Like I noticed iTunes seems to update right away, but the, the newer stuff that I that I like and I use for all my other podcasts on the the podcasting 2.0 setup or podcast index, I think is what it's called. That doesn't seem to update correctly, and maybe it's because we were in hiatus for so long. But I have to sort of keep kicking that to get it to update. So I think as as we release more often, things will will sort of light up again and hopefully get back to that you know that five thousand mark or so. That's about where we were. Yeah, well, I'm just happy to have the show back, and I appreciate you guys having me on to talk about doing idiot stuff. <laughs> yeah, and thanks for being on. I I appreciate the feedback. It's good to know people are listening, and obviously, you know, we're in communication outside the show anyway. But it, it's good to hear from a couple people, and like uh, Sean Birch reached out to me as well when we talked about the you know the risk, and he had some ideas. So we may have to have him back, especially as we get closer to the Isle of Man. TT again and and cover that. We missed it last year. We never got that episode going. Speaking of that, are you thinking about uh, Mid Ohio this year for Moto America? I don't know. I'll have to map that out. The time of year and distance and all that. Yeah, that's a that's a big track. We lost, you know, we lost VIR. They they haven't been there. This will be two years now. They haven't run there, and they're not going back either. Uh, VIR and Pittsburgh are owned by the same guy. And, uh, he's pretty much told Moto America to pound sand. Yeah. What's his deal? Has he got his underwear on too tight or what? Um, the VIR thing was more scheduling and they don't make a lot of money off of Moto America. So they just would rather have cars. What happened at Pittsburgh had a ton of rain. 
all of his people that parked these big tractor trailers parked them in the grass. Oh. And they destroyed his grass. He threw apparently threw a massive fit and said, No more. You guys don't come back. And um that's when uh mid Ohio agreed to fix a couple of their corners mm-hmm. and make it better for motorcycles, uh, which is they're repaving it this year, or they just repaved it, I don't remember. They're fixing some corners, and that's why a Moto America has said we're going back to we're going back to Mid Ohio because that's a really big track. That's that's kind of like Daytona size track, like with the grandstands because they run they run NASCAR there. They run, I think they run Indy there as well sometimes. Well, and I think IMSA runs there. Yeah, the sports so car the big, series. Yeah, some of the big people run there. Uh, I just heard today that. Laguna Seca is being sued. They're trying to shut it down. Oh, oh, really? Uh, there, is this from that? What? Is this from that uh, track day guy? No, it's um all the people who live around it are are suing. Oh, screw those so, people! Yeah, it's a nuisance to the to the surrounding communities uh, because of the noise complaints and everything, which means they'll probably end up winning. So you can see Laguna Seca go down. Uh, but you got that big track out there in Tennessee that's opening up and that's going to be Moto GP capable. That'd be nice. Yeah. Cause they're, they're going to homologate it for, they're hoping to get world Superbike, uh, F1 and Moto GP there within like the next three years. Oh, that's big money. It's a big track. Yeah, that's big Something money. like, Oh my God. It's so like 12 miles worth of track or something like that. 13 miles worth of track. Oof. Uh, state of the art, uh, F one garages. So it's going to be big time, uh, out there, uh, South of Nashville, I think. All right. Well, we'll have to keep tabs on that, but yeah, we we'll probably do. We may do motor America at Atlanta. I'd love to go down to Daytona, but I'm not sure I can pull that off, but we're probably not doing the Rolex this year, which is a bummer. We've done well, like that I said, it, it, six it, years. Two hundred, the two hundred. They don't let you in the grandstands. I think that's uh, changing this year because when I looked at tickets, they had grandstand tickets for sale. But maybe that's for the infield grandstands. Yeah, that's where we were at. They'll let you in. We were up on the rooftops for a while. Of the garage uh, area. The, yeah, looking yeah. at the bank uh, on the other side of the grandstands, and then you really couldn't see much. So we ended up finding the infield grandstands and we sat there, but it, it really, it's not a good spectator track. The grandstands Uh, at Daytona really are a cool spot to watch because, you know, you go up about 25, 30 rows and you just sit there and you can see the whole track. You just watch everything unfold in front of you. And and that's what we do when we go down to the Rolex, the 24 hour races, we usually spend some time in the garages. We do some time in the infield. And we, you know, go sit in the stands for a while and we kind of move around, but the, the grandstands are kind of downtime, you know, you just sit there and veg and, you know, have something to eat, have something to drink and, yeah. you know, watch the entire track. I mean, it was a cool race. Uh, it's going to be a really good race this year. If they ever allow people into those grandstands, then I might be interested in going back, but just being able to see that small infield portion. Yeah. And then you could see a little bit of the, of the high wall. Uh, it, it just really wasn't, I'd rather watch it on TV. 
It's probably a capacity thing. You know, Motor America is probably going to have to pull more people to get Daytona to say, okay, yeah, we're going to open the, you know, a few sections of the main grandstand and that way they can staff it and all that stuff. It That would be my guess is they don't have the attendance for Daytona to, to make it worthwhile to open up that section because it's, it's a lot of staff. Even for oh, the yeah, Rolex, sure. there's not that many people yeah. there in the grandstands, but even for that, you see there's there's a lot of workers there to make yeah. that happen. Well, I don't know if you've been following the changes, but I think Moto America and Superbike is going to be off the freaking hook this year. Uh, they, they, got, they got some big dogs coming in, uh, more Ducatis coming in, um, uh, just... Bobier is going to be back and healthy. They they just going to have a lot of competition yep. this year. Sean Dillon Kelly is coming back. He's on a BMW yep. too, right? Yeah. Uh, Kyla's moving up to a Ducati. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. She, yeah. She's amazing. And she's going to be in, um, uh, she's going to be on a V2, I believe in super sport. Super sport. Yeah. That's a V2. Yeah. So she, she got a Ducati ride. Uh, I think she's with Warhorse. Uh, there's going to be a second Ducati team this year on Superbike. Well, we should get uh, that exact. We should do. Um, we should have you come back and talk about Moto America, and I'll get Bryce on the show. He's been that'd be awesome. He's been dying yeah. to talk about something. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm ready for it to come back. It's uh, the off season's already been long. I got plenty of hockey to watch, but I'm ready for some racing. Yeah, well, yeah, we watch every Moto America race and every GP race. We. We let World Superbike go last year. You know, we still kind of keep tabs on what's going on, but we don't we don't do the video pass and all that anymore. Mainly because Dorna is stupid; they won't uh-huh. provide the same app that they do for GP, which makes no sense to me at all. Nope. So nope. That, makes no sense. And that was my feedback. I was like, nope, you're not getting any money this year until you provide the same level of app you do for GP. So I canceled it. And, and sadly, it's better racing than GP. It, it, at times it is yeah certainly is you know i mean i guess this la- the last two years have been a little little bad with uh batista just running away with it but the racing itself is usually better but gp the last two years has been pretty good too so i can't complain it uh, has. this last se- the racing this, this year was, was really exciting was good and i'm i'm a fan of the sprint races i don't know if if other people are in the same camp, but I think the sprint races have, have been a, a little shot in the arm for the series. Oh, I agree. I like them. And, and to complain about them, uh, world Superbike does three races a weekend and, and they're doing full, full length races. Yeah. You GP get guys. Yeah. yeah. It's just a bunch of complaining. Uh, yeah, I but don't, they were I don't all exciting that. races. And it's different uh, riders though, because you have people that you have like, um, you know, Bender and, and Jack Miller, who just will absolutely kill it for the 10 lap sprint, but maybe they don't have the endurance to pull it off on Sunday. So you see different people at the front on Saturday because the, the race got a different feel to it. Well, and it definitely kept the points closer. You're right. It, and it gave me a reason to watch on Saturday. I always look forward to that. The one week that they didn't have the race because they canceled it at uh, what was it, Phillip Island. I was like bummed out. I'm like, it's Saturday. I'm supposed to be watching, you know, my, my sprint race. Like that's the primer. It gets you ready for the, for the yeah. weekend. And, that's your appetizer. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I'm excited because you know, you got Marquez is going to prove he's washed up. Uh, cause they're going to put him on a championship bike and he's still going to suck. 
you know, so I'm, I'm excited about the next season. So, <laughs> you know, uh, I, Iker Lackawanna is going to go on that, uh, that old bike of Marquez and he's going to win something. Uh, that's not going to happen, but it'll be interesting still- to see how, t- how the Repsol Honda does without Mark. And if Marquez can pull it off now that he's on a Ducati and we'll see. It's it's still a one year. Is it a one year old bike or is he going to be on current spec? Uh, I think he's going to be on current spec. I believe he's on a current spec. Yeah, because they kind of, yeah, they kind of finagled that for him. But he's not going to have an ear of Ducati like he had in Honda. Yeah. You know, he's not going to be able to say bend over backwards and they're going to bend over backwards. And he may not so. get mid season updates like the factory team will, but yeah. he'll at least be on a current bike. Well, and with all the concession that they're going to have for the Japanese bikes, it's going to be very competitive racing this year. I think uh, it's it, Moto America and GP should both be really good this year. Uh, I think this is the first year where I went and bet on Gagne to win it. Uh, yeah, he's got his work cut out for him f- for sure this time. I didn't. They gave him a pretty good fight last year, but you know, not enough consistency to pull it off. I think. The, the beamers are right. Be well, those BMWs are right there. Uh, those orange cap BMWs were ridiculously fast, and the Ducatis are just going to be up his rear end the whole season. So, yeah, I, I, I got a feeling it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting season. But yeah, yeah you shoot me up when it get closer to the season starting. Uh, shoot me a, a text, and we'll talk about it. Yeah, for sure. Let's do it. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks for doing the cold weather. Thanks for sharing a little bit of your, your crash and recovery. We still have to do that show at some point for me and Alan. We're still trying to line that up, but, um, but yeah, we'll, and we'll do a motor America show in the future. That'll be fun. All right. Yeah. You guys have a good night. All right, Chad, anything else you want to throw out there? Are you ready for bed? No, I'm good, you look man. tired. I'm, <laughs> I've been rocking and rolling since three forty-five this morning. So, all right. Well, I guess with that, our new send off, locked and loaded, kickstands up. Kickstands up. Let's go for a ride, man. for listening please consider supporting the show find more details at loudpipes.net forward slash donate